Awesome. Awesome, man. Welcome to Four Points Church. My name is Pastor Russ. I have the humble honor of being the senior pastor here at Four Points. My family went to Redneck Beach last week, I mean Myrtle Beach last week, and uh, got a respite in. And Pastor Daniel did such a great job. Can we give it up for Pastor Dan, the word he brought last week? Yeah. He and I have just, just drawn close, uh, getting to know each other. They moved here from Colorado, but my favorite thing about them is that they're Seahawk fans, so I have someone to suffer with. Because it's going to be ugly in Seahawk world this fall. They, they play on Monday night against our uh, Benedict Arnold of a quarterback who loves Jesus, but has decided to go to the Denver Broncos to betray the Seattle Seahawks. None of you care about this. You see, this is what it felt like to be a Clemson fan in California for 13 years. No one cared. It was a beautiful, a beautiful thing. We're studying the book of Acts, and I bring up suffering together because that's exactly what we're looking at in Acts chapter 4. Uh, it's two guys that have done the right thing but gotten results that would make you think they've done the wrong thing. How many of you have ever done the right thing but then experienced a response that made you think you had obviously done the wrong thing? Anybody ever been there? You do the right thing, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, she's going to be ecstatic. I did the laundry for her. She comes home, and there's no cuddling in sight because apparently you did the, the wrong thing. See, y'all, y'all, are, y'all are quiet right now because a lot of you thought you were doing the right thing the first time you got married and did laundry, and then you realize some things desire and require a different cycle. That's why there's cycles on that thing. I didn't know that. When I, when I was a bachelor, you throw it all in there. Who cares? Red and white, whatever. It's a little pink when it comes out, but it's clean. Did the right thing, got the wrong results. Anybody ever been there? For some of you, you've worked really hard, maybe on a test. You studied. You've thought that, man, I've got it down. You, you did all the right things in preparation for it, but then the teacher gave you the wrong face, letting you know that you did not give the answers that were required. You, you were given math answers in a chemistry test. It just didn't come out the way that you thought. Well, Peter and John have uh, been walking into Solomon's portico to worship God in Acts chapter 3. They walk by a man who was lame. He's begging for money. He was not allowed to go into the temple because he had this physical deformity. They communicate to him, hey, buddy, uh, we do not have money. He looks away from them. They say, but look at us. What we do have, we give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand. And all of a sudden, this this guy's entire life changes. He moves from sitting to dancing. And apparently it was a Baptist temple they were at because the dancing disturbed the temple. That's funny. Way more funnier than you're giving me credit for right now. So as the guy who was moments ago lame, not able to be in the temple, now dances in the temple, a crowd is aroused in Solomon's portico. I wanted to give you a picture of what it would have looked like. Uh, There was this uh, kind of porch that went around the exterior. More than likely, they were somewhere over in this area as he would have been begging by a gate over here. And John and Peter are preaching the gospel. They're proclaiming that Jesus is bringing salvation and this Messiah that they've been waiting for, that their soul has longed for, has come, and that they can be saved, that they can be renewed, that they can be transformed. And some people took exception to that. And chapter 4 picks up with the uh, response of the leadership in that temple whenever God began to move. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest. 
the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. How many of you know the difference in tone when your mom means nicely come here and when your mom means if you don't come here, you may see Jesus for real? Anybody, anybody you know the difference? Like there are certain moments where my mother would call out and I knew that that voice meant it's safe, come at a leisurely pace. Right? But then there was another level of auditory performance that my mother would reserve for special occasions only that let me know if I didn't with urgency come, I was going to be in a lot of trouble. It it was like the weight of her authority was coming. Well, verse 1 and 2 are letting you know that this is not a leisurely come over here and talk to the leadership. The whole authority has done shown up. Look at who's there. Uh, Peter and John are preaching, and then all of a sudden, the priest, who had been on their Levitical duty, a two-week rotation throughout the year to perform the uh, necessary things that would have been done within the temple, they all come. The captain of the temple guard, that's the popo, they show up. Remember, they just arrested Jesus a little while ago, and were with the mob that did that. So the temple guard, the priest, and then the Sadducees, which is the legal counsel for the temple. They done brought everybody. They brought the priest on duty. They brought the police who are patrolling and making sure peace is kept. And they brought the people who are going to prosecute you and sentence you to death to come and make sure that whatever's going on, whatever kind of uh, uh, insurrection you're causing within their walls gets snubbed out. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter... And John, we're teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. After all, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail. Because it's illegal to try, under Jewish law, a person after dark. But isn't it interesting that there's levels of adherence to the law when you're a legalist? Because Jesus was such a big threat that they said, the law, ah, forget about that. Let's try him in the middle of the night. See, that's what the legalism inside humanity does. It causes us to pick and choose when and where we're going to be obedient to the Word of God. And so instead of being God's messengers, we become God's editors. And we begin to try and edit out the things that are inconvenient to the parts of our life that aren't in line with the Word and the work and the Spirit of God. Meanwhile, we then demonize other people whose lives are in a contradiction to the Word of God because they don't struggle in the same ways we struggle or places we struggle. So instead of becoming a community of repenters, we become a a community of people who are hiding in their sin and covering up their face, putting on their church clothes and their makeup and cover up, trying to keep their real life out of the public eye. You see, some of us, we got a legalistic bone. Some of you see the bare feet up here and you're already like, oh, I just can't believe he's barefoot. I'm just being biblical. That's all it is. Get over it. My feet ain't going to hurt you. My feet ain't going to keep the Holy Spirit from moving. I never will forget, I was in a chapel one time, and a guy came up. It was a Christian school, and he put me in a headlock, and he said, I can tell you don't go to school here, because we don't wear hats in our, in our chapel. And I said, yeah, I go to school, and I inserted the name of the Christian school that I went to, and I said, and the Holy Spirit moves with our hats on there. And I didn't mean to be that offensive, and I was probably carnally more proud of myself for being offensive than I should have been and needed to repent. But nonetheless, I hate legalism because I see it in my own self all the time. How about you? So they show up to snuff out what God is 
doing. It's the middle of the night, so they throw them in prison. Verse 4 gives us a detail, though, and this is what happens when a move of God comes. You can arrest the people who God's using in the moment, but, verse 4, many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about... When God moves, you can arrest everybody you want to arrest, but it won't stop it. You can forbid and put laws up that try to hem in the work of God, but it won't stop it. You see, this is an amazing, amazing moment. Jesus had warned that obedience in the direction of Christ would lead to resistance. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus said, In this life you will have trouble, tribulation, you will go through suffering, you will be persecuted. Now, I find it important, especially in our American context, to help you understand that there's a difference between you being foolish and getting foolish results and you being persecuted for righteous pursuits. For some of you, you've been foolish. You smudged it. You just spent until the account went negative, and then you're like, oh, but we're being persecuted. You're not being persecuted, you're being foolish. Your trial was man-made. It was created by yourself. That's, that's not the persecution that's being spoken of in the Scripture. Persecution is this long, spirit-filled, observed obedience in the path of Christ that he blazed for us, knowing that when you try to walk as Jesus walked, living as Jesus lived, there will be resistance that Jesus experienced that you will experience as well. So there is a righteous persecution, and then there's a fool's sowing and reaping of ridiculous results in their life that has nothing to do with the persecution that's being spoken of in the Bible. Peter and John are preaching the gospel to an unreached group, and they're being persecuted because they're trying to do what Jesus did. Right now in your life, you may have trouble. Uh, Ray Montoya, love the dude. He's coming to the Peace Center at some point this fall. He sings, trouble, 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 trouble. Trouble been following me from the day I was born. Okay, for some of you, that trouble ain't got nothing to do with the devil. It ain't got nothing to do with you trying to follow Jesus. It's got to do with the fact that you have your heart hardened towards the way of God, and you've got a compartmentalized view of God that allows for me space for you to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it, and it's bringing lots of persecution in your life because of the trouble you as Lord and leader of your life are leading yourself into. Hey, don't give him credit. Don't, don't point to him and go, oh, that's righteous persecution. No, righteous persecution is in the way of God for the purpose of God, focused on the kingdom of God. And for some of you, until you pay attention and wake up, you're going to continue to experience unrighteous resistance that comes from a heart that's set against God, not working with or for God. You see, if the path Jesus walked on earth was met with persecution, then we should assume that our walking in the same path after Christ will be met with similar results. One of my favorite people uh, to study and read is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died at 38 as a martyr during World War II. Uh, in, the, uh, in one of his last statements that's recorded of him, he said this, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in the preparation of the Augsburg Confession, which is a big church confession that came out a long time ago, similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to... In the path of obedience and desiring to 
uh, proclaim the gospel and desiring to live in the way that Christ would have us live, experience resistance and suffering. This is my concern for us, church, is that many of you have a cost-free faith. It has never cost you anything to stand for it or on it or to proclaim it. You've never once experienced the ostracization or isolation that comes from communicating and living for Christ publicly. It shouldn't be that way. In this world, if you are for Christ publicly, there will be a group. Sometimes close, sometimes not close, sometimes people that you once called friend that now just ghost you and leave you alone who will begin to distance themselves from you because they are choosing to stand in darkness as you are choosing to stand in the light. And my concern for you is that many of you, your whole life will profess that we follow Jesus, but it never disrupts anything. Not even the own life that you lived before you met Jesus. And that's a concern and a problem that we all should hold dear to us. Not because we're looking for trouble, but when you follow Jesus, trouble will come. Pushback will come because he is bringing an invading kingdom into this world that is around us. The Apostle Paul, speaking to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, said, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer Put that in your prosperity gospel pipe and smoke it. If all your life is is a series of you just getting richer and life getting better, and and, and that's all you understand God to be, then man, do you even know the good shepherd that the Bible speaks of? Because last time I checked, he leads us by still waters, but he leads us through valleys that have shadows and depths that you've never been through. And how can you know the depth of his lordship if you don't walk through the gravest of of valleys that this world offers and brings to you? It's not that God desires your pain. It's that God's promised that no pain will not be connected to his purpose as you pursue him with it. So it's not meaningless. It's not a wandering or an aimlessness. It's not speaking against his character, but it's promoting and speaking to the character of the God who's coming to bring everything to a place called new or shalom that will be restored where life is as it should be again in the new heaven and the new earth. In opposition, you've got a whole mob of people that show up as John and Peter do what they're on this earth to do. They're going to the nations as best they know how, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, teaching them to obey, and here come the priests, the Levites who were on temple duty, the temple guard, those that were there to protect the treasure, the guards that kept the Gentiles from going past the Corinthian gate because they weren't allowed into the presence of God in the temple. Those guards that also had seized Jesus, and then the Sadducees come. And that's how you know it's stepped up a level. The Pharisees opposed Jesus for religious reasons, mainly holding convictions about the wrong things in their life. For many of you, you could learn a lesson from the Pharisees because your convictions are in the wrong place. They're in tertiary issues, secondary things that don't matter, styles and methods instead of theology and truth. But on the other hand, there's this other group that was there called the Sadducees, and that's who's present. And the Sadducees' opposition came mainly not from a desire for political faithfulness, but it came from a desire for power and political motivation. You see, most persecution of the early church in the book of Acts comes at the hands of Sadducees. They were the materialistic rationalists of their day. 
They denied the supernatural, denied that the demonic or angelic existed, and denied any idea of the afterlife. To the Sadducees, the Messiah was nothing more than an idea, but not someone that they were waiting and looking for to be their Savior. Here's what scares me. Again, and I'm just going to keep being the annoying pastor until either you stop coming or until we have to blow a wall out to make room. But here, here's the deal. This is my concern. For a lot of you, you're more Sadducee than you are Christian. You, 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 it's more about the appearance. It's more about the look. It's more about the position. It's more about the power. And what you're going to do is raise up an entire generation of Marxists who watch, your, who watch your example of your compartmentalized fake faith and go, I want nothing to do with it because it's not worthy of my time. I, I fear that for many of us, our spiritual practices are not motivated for relationship and love and greater adoration of God, but they are motivated for applause and affirmation that we can continue to live a self-focused, self-righteous existence that is denying the very power that the Holy Spirit desires to bring into our lives so that we can be a light in the darkness that the scriptures have called us to. One of my favorite pastors, R. Kent Hughes, said it this way about the Sadducees, and unfortunately I believe it's true of many of us. This group was educated, wealthy, elite, but they were also unprincipled collaborationists, politically, yep, psychophants, who would sell their, listen, they would sell their mothers to stay in power. How many of you have sold your integrity for money, position, appearance, and power? How many of you would be called a man of God here, but for the sake of the same appearance are known as a man of the world out there? You clean up the mouth here, you raise your hands to the God you don't serve here, and then you go and continue serving yourself, making everyone think, oh, they're good, they, that's a great man of God. Then surprised at the marriage problems, surprised at the kids that rebel against the faith and run away from the Father's example down the road, all because what was really going on is you were negotiating your integrity to different groups and selling it off at different prices. They were evil, control freaks, and they did not want anyone rocking their boat, which is why they killed Jesus. And it's why they want to kill John and Peter. You see, what we have in Acts chapter 4 is a battle between, the, between man-made religion and gospel. Let me rephrase that. Between what men do with religion apart from the Spirit and the good news that can only come from God who establishes real faith by the Spirit in our lives. Bono famously said, <laughs> the prophet, that's a joke, <laughs> famously said, religion is what you have when the spirit leaves the room. It's man-made, it's manipulative, it's man's work, not God's work. One of my favorite stories about this comes from one of my favorite preachers, his name's Charles Stanley, he's written a book it's called Insight for Living. He's an old guy. He's a gray hair. He don't care if he's cool anymore, which is why I think he's so cool. <laughs> I hope when I'm in my 80s, I still just want to preach, not because I need anything, but because I just want to preach. 
He told a story back in the day that he experienced. It says on Greenville Avenue in Dallas, Texas, there was a transforming work of God that took place like he had never seen. It happened in a church that had never experienced anything like it in its existence. They had one adult class. It numbered four on average, five when everybody showed up. Those four or five people got their heads together and thought, there's got to be a better way than this. So they dipped into the student body of an evangelical seminary not far away and found a young first-year student named Harold. They had never met him. Though he struggled to get his head together in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I can relate, and church history, he agreed to teach the class on Sundays. He took the Bible as his only text, opened it, and began to preach and teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, something that had never been done in the church before. These people had been exceedingly religious, but most had not been born again. How they loved discovering what God had to say through that young teacher. By and by, the class doubled, and then doubled again, and then again. As that school year came to an end, the first-year student decided that he should look into the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, which required training in California. That summer, he asked another young man if he would teach the class in his place. He did. Through the summer... The class grew even larger, 50, 60, 70. In fact, the room would seat only about 65 uncomfortably, so people stood along the back and side walls of this adult class. Meanwhile, the search for a pastor continued within the church. Fall and winter came, and the class approached 100. By that time, they had been through several books of the Bible and were studying the book of Jonah. The members began to learn how to study the Bible on their own, to see the truth of God for themselves, and all the relevance of authentic Christian and all the relevance of authentic Christianity. Numerous people came to know Christ. Before long, the church called a pastor who told the young seminary student that he no longer could stay and teach the class. The new minister complained that the people were becoming too serious about the Bible, talking too much about Jesus rather than talking about how to grow the church. In the place of the seminary student, the pastor's wife began to teach. She began with a series of great Americans within a matter of weeks. That's called um, Never mind, I don't have time to go down that tangent. But it's happening today still, but I'll, I'll leave all you that love Fox News alone for a week, okay? She, I don't love any of your news sources. They're, anyway, none of them have the word good in front of it, so. I'm for good news, just in case you're wondering. So you're like, well, I need to be informed. And you need to want to worry, apparently. Anyway. I said I wasn't going to do it. Okay, ministers complain that the people are becoming too serious about the Bible, talking too much about Jesus rather than talking about how the church grows. So they do a series on great Americans. Within a matter of weeks, the class dwindled back to five. My friend Harold was the first teacher. I was the second teacher, not me. Charles Stanton. Isn't it amazing how quickly religion can sap the presence of God from a room where God was so free to move and active in his work? This is the battle that we're in, a battle between a man-made version of religion and the gospel work that's going on through the disciples. So they're in the pokey because they did the right thing. Most of you, several of you, have visited the pokey, probably not because you were preaching the gospel. Verse 5, again, there's a difference between righteous and unrighteous persecution. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the relatives of the high priest. And that means not a lot to a lot of you, but I'm a history dork, and I read that, and I'm like, ooh, okay, like, like, look at who's here. Annas 
still sat in the seat positionally as the high priest, but the active high priest that was actually doing it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, because Caiaphas was the one that was there during Jesus' trial. So Annas is kind of the figurehead, right? He just says whatever they tell him to say. It's kind of what we have in our political system. Uh, continuing. Anna, I'm sorry. John and Alexander, I'm not really. John and Alexander and other relatives of the high priest, they brought in two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name who, have you done this? How this happened? Who did it? What happened? What's going on? Then Peter, here's the word. Pay attention. Peter, JV squad, fisherman, punches and cuts ears off before he thinks Peter runs and follows Jesus at a distance. Peter Jesus curses at little girls over burning barrels. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between pre-Acts Peter and post-Acts to Peter? It's right there. He's filled with with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? It's a trap question. Let me clearly state to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says again, Peter doesn't have a printing press. He's likely not memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is bringing to mind Scripture so that he could recall and communicate it. Psalm 118, 22 is what we see. The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. He's telling the Sadducees, who their entire life have been telling everyone else how to be saved, that they don't know how to be saved. It's like you on a Friday night or a Saturday telling all the coaches that their entire life of focused on football, you've never played a down of football, how they should coach. It's real fun. There's salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter. That's bold. And John, for they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They have no professional training. No duh. They also recognized them as men who had been with, filled with the Spirit, walking with Jesus, disruptive to the world. But since they could see the men, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, okay, you're lame. Like, not like your friends call you lame, like you can't walk lame, okay, like, like, you're like for oh, there goes the word of God. Okay, <laughs> okay, so you you can't walk. You get healed. You start dancing a jig. You know, like you're happy. Okay, they get thrown in jail, and you're like. The next day, they're on trial, and apparently he's standing there. Now, some theologians believe they threw the dude that got healed in jail with them. Can you imagine? Like, you, you, your one phone call, they didn't have a phone call, but let's just play an imaginary game. Like, Mom, not going to believe it. What, babe? I got healed. Like, what do you mean you got healed? I'm walking. What? You know, like, she's excited. Where are you? I want to see you. I'm in jail. Why are you in jail? Because I got healed. <laughs> Apparently, it's against the law around here for, you know, me to get healed. 
Cute, cute. And then the next day, like, you're just, like, standing there, and you're like, that's kind of cool, you know? Ooh, lunch. You know, because you're just working it out, just experiencing, you know, the legs that you've not ever experienced for a long time, all because Peter and John gave you what only God could give you, healing, and as a result of that, you're standing here on trial along. Side them. This is a crazy story. Continue with me. I won't get bogged down. A couple questions through these 15, 10 verses that we just looked at. The boldness of John and Peter has not come from education. It's not come from their position in society that have availed them to unique privileges. It has come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Many in this moment would speak to what they are doing for God. How has this happened? Well, Peter and John, we walked with Jesus. And we, as his disciples, are the continuation of his ministry. It's not that that would have been untrue, but it's not the primary purpose of power behind what they are doing. Instead, they speak to the work of God instead of their work that can be seen as God works through them. You see, many of this moment speak to themselves. Many would point to their efforts, their faithfulness, and in doing so, be powerless. What made them bold was not their individual courage, but their courage that came from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The glory was not of the individual, Peter, John, or the lame beggar. It was in what was in the individual, the Holy Spirit. So my question to you as followers of Jesus, for those of you who are, is are you tapping into daily and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you tapping into and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now I understand, some of you come from a Baptist background. I was a a Southern Baptist preacher for 13 years. I get it. We talk about the Holy Spirit. Everyone freaks out. And you're like, where's the flag? Okay, I got mine in the back. We're not going to do it right now, okay? That's a joke. It's a joke. Some of you are new and you're like, is he being serious? (laughs) Still don't know, do you? That's the point. All right, so um, here's my point. The Spirit-filled life is the Christian life. There's no Christianity apart from God's work in you that then produces the fruit that's seen on the outside of you. So let's let's stop denominationalizing what the Christian life is and dividing it up. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are ill-equipped to do the work of God. In fact, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. And the way that we know that we are in Christ is that the Spirit of God continues to convict and draw and bring forward the things that are ugly out of us so that in the light they can be repented of and surgically removed from us so that we can, by the Spirit, become more and more through the Word like Jesus, which is the image that we are being made into. So how do you get filled with the Spirit? On a daily basis, like how, how does that work? Well, Jesus gave us some clues. Luke 9, 23, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. That means carnally, you've got to get yourself out of the seat as Lord over your decision-making and view of life. So I start by dying to myself and taking up my, my, my cross. Then what do we do? The scripture says, abide in me and I in For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we abide in God? Well, it looks like slowing down and not making a hundred decisions thunder about what's going to or not going to happen on your own and within your own reasoning and within your own rationalization. So sometimes in order for you to be filled with the Spirit, you've got to slow down and wait on the Spirit to give you direction. Not because the Spirit moves slow, but because we are not by nature Spirit-led people. We're carnally led. We're led by our desires and our flesh, and our flesh is loud and often gets in the way. So what do I have to do? I have to abide. 
well, I don't have time to abide. Then you got a priority issue. I just keep yelling that from here until someone realizes, like, hey, maybe we should change up the way we're living because it ain't working. Right? I don't have time to rest with God. That's a pro- that, like, okay, like, gentle, gentle, gentle. Okay, so <laughs> let, let, let me be clear. Let me be clear. There are a lot of things that you can move around. Okay? You can move around when you eat dinner. You can move around when you go to the gym. You can move around like when you do that extra work. You, you can move around even like how and when you get family time in. And they vary in greatest, greatest to least importance, right? You don't move God around. That's where it starts. Like he's the non-negotiable that everything else proceeds from. So since it comes from God working in me that leads me into everything that God does through me, he is preeminent and the authority and first. And for some of you, this is the problem. Like you're, you're two coffees in thinking the coffee's what you need when you need the Holy Spirit. Thinking the task list is what you've got to get off your plate before you prioritize Paying attention to, through the word of God and through prayer, the presence of God and asking God to fill you and give you his eyes to see the world around you. So instead of prioritizing getting before God, you prioritize getting the list of things that are weighing you down that you think you have to do, that you put on yourself to get done before you sit with God to give you the energy and the supply of what you need to actually go and do it in a way that will give God glory. It's okay. I I know, I know. Some of you are like, like, I haven't heard this before. It's okay. Welcome to church. So my question is, are you tapping into the Holy Spirit? Are you dying to yourself, being centered on his mission, being your mission, allowing him to fill you with his word and through prayer give you a sense of his presence to go about living your day? You see, this is bold. Peter and John are standing in front of the religious mob that are looking for a way under Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5 to condemn them by the law. By the way, that's what religion is, right? It's like you're, it, it's, it's, you're all going to die and go to hell. And there's probably not much of a lifeline for you. It's, it's the passiveness of Jonah in the book of Jonah. And God still, and here's what I want you to see. God still, in spite of how religious and in the way we can get, still does amazing things. So let me make sure you understand. I'm not saying other places of worship, they're religious. Other pastors, I'm self-righteous, I'm carnally in the way most days. I have to die to myself, take up my cross, or I do the same stuff. I walk by people who are facing eternity with no (laughs) passion or interest in doing anything to throw out the lifeline that I found in Christ Jesus. I'm the problem. I'm not bold. Because when I'm not filled with the Spirit, I'm just consumed with myself. It's bold because they're standing in front of a mob that's trying to kill them. And Peter, in front of a deceitful, religiously devout, politically motivated group, tells them in verse 12, there is salvation in none but Jesus. It's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or judgment. It's Jesus or hell. No matter how righteous in your eyes and in your good old boy club you may think that you are. Then in verse 13 to 15, look at what they say. They recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now the question is how? How? Now all those names that were listed back in there, that were in that council, Annas and Caiaphas, all those names that were there, okay? Let's go back, put that on our brains and think about it. In history, perhaps, 
Caiaphas recognized them because he had seen the same boldness from Jesus a few years prior when Jesus stood before him. Via the Holy Spirit, John and Peter were in constant communion with Jesus and their communion with him was causing the religious leaders to see Jesus through them. It's like hugging a grandma who has put on way too much Mary Kay and when you leave her, you smell like her for the rest of the day. That's what being with Jesus in the Word by the Spirit is like. It's like when you've been with Him, when it's not like a, a compartmentalized religious activity, you leave and you're just different. And it's not derived because like you're like, I'm going to be a Christian today. It's, it's because God is at work, like He's present in the person. And I know you know it. I know you've met people. They're like, there's something, like I, we all say we're Christian, but there's something like, like there's different in that person. I don't know what it is, but like, like I'm just drawn to them because there's like, the, I wouldn't call it an aroma, but there's something that's just drawing me. Something's different. For Peter and John, something was different. They, they had waited on the Spirit. They had uh, betrayed and gone farther in their sin than they thought they could go. So they learned the downside to thinking that they were self-sufficient. So they were living a God-dependent life in a way that allowed for God to move in a powerful way through them. And as a result of it, like people were seeing Jesus in and through their life. You see, companionship with Jesus transforms us. Let me ask you a question. You may not be where you want to be today. You may not be living the way that you want to live today. But if you would profess to be a follower of Jesus, can you look back on your life and see how Jesus has changed you? Maybe not to the extent that you think you should be changed by now, but how many of you, you, you generally, you look back and you're like, no, 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 I'm not where I want to be per se. But man, I am, I am not there anymore. Yesterday I was sitting at uh, one of the most beautiful places on earth, and that's not a debate, it's just a fact. Like the mountains of South Carolina are gorgeous. And Lake Hartwell around Clemson University is just absolutely majestic to take in. And Clemson played like garbage. And there are people like 40 and 50 and 60 year old men way too invested in like how 18 to 22 year olds were performing with a piece of pig flesh on the field. And they're losing their mind. And all I could think about is, God, thank you, because that, that was me. And now all I can think about is I have spent the day just throwing the ball with my son and talking about sports and explaining football. I, I'm just... There's this, I'm just fellowshiping with him. And, like, I, of course I want Clemson to win. Like, who wants to lose to Furman? I mean, like, of course. But God, like, what the real show, like, the thing that really matters is actually here. And it's not out there. It's, it's this conversation. It, it's, it's, it's him grabbing my hand in the crowd. And it's just walking together and having time as father and son to enjoy a game together. It's, it's my friends that I got to talk to and I haven't seen in a long time. We hug each other and like, hey, how you been? And, like, and, and gosh, man, church, should, this is a side note, I don't have time to preach it, but I think church should be more like tailgating. Like, like we greet each other better at a tailgate than we greet each other in church sometimes. Y'all need to like start just, I don't know, like drink a Dr. Pepper and like hug somebody today. God. Instead of coming in and y'all like, like, oh, can we touch them? Can we talk to them? I mean, like, like stop it. Jeez. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they, they get together and like, how do we, control the move of God. 
That's what you see in verses 16 to 18. But what we see in verses 19 to 22 is the faith of these new disciples and the integrity of it. They come back and they say, okay, okay, okay. Here's the deal. We get that a notable miracle has happened. And we can't put you to death because we can't find a reason to do it. But if you speak in the name of Jesus ever again, it'll be worse than it would have been if we'd have just gone ahead and finished it now. You understand? Shut your mouth. Live in fear. Compartmentalize your faith. Keep it to yourself. Be a light, but cover it. Be a Christian, but publicly be apathetic about it. Don't assume that your Jesus is the Jesus everybody needs. Don't rock our boat. Don't flip our world upside down. And Peter and John, looking at this, replied in verse 19, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everyone about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot, for everyone was praising God for the miraculous sign of the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Hmm. Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois. An uncompromising man, he had come from North Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. One Sunday morning, when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation. Knowing that Cartwright was used to saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, regardless of how people might react to it, I can relate to this guy, they warned him not to say anything that would offend the chief executive. So he got up to the pulpit and opened with this. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. So, Andrew Jackson, you need to know you will go to hell if you do not repent. (laughs) The audience was shocked. They wondered how the president would respond to this. But after the service, he told Cartwright, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Here's my question. Is your Christianity the kind of Christianity that doesn't fold even if it means death? Is your witness the kind of witness that won't hide even if it means death? Is your kind of faith the kind of faith you proclaim even if it means prison and ostracization and isolation and being removed from society? I had a friend share with me an accountability card this week and on it there was a question that I hated because it convicted me. I'm the preacher. These meetings are about you being convicted, not about me being convicted. It doesn't always work that way. Usually it's the opposite. I'm convicted. I get up here and preach. Then I go about trying to live a life that's submitted to the Spirit and doing what the Bible's called us to do throughout the week. And on it, it said, have you shared the gospel with anyone this week? I'm like, well, on Sunday. But I don't ask you just to simply share your faith on Sunday, right? I ask you to share it to the waitress on Tuesday who inappropriately is hitting on you, even though you're like, 
talking about your wife and cleaning the ring. Like, that was awkward. It happened this week in that meeting. I'm like, hey, Jesus, Morgan, you not Morgan. We should be looking for invitations and lines in the water to share the gospel every single day. And it's in the ought to category, meaning you know you ought to, but none of you do. And so here's what I want you to do. You ready? Be bold and go and try it. Just, just do it. I know, I know. Like we're supposed to give you like a 17-week class that you're not going to come to on how to share your Christ with your neighbor without fear and our evangelism strategy. Here's our strategy. Christ in you the hope of glory I believe Christ is in you so go into all nations whether you're undereducated and untrained not going to know all the answers might put your foot in your mouth might cause like an insurrection in the school you might lose your job you might have been up at the pokey, but what a great story. How'd you get here? I killed three people. How'd you get here? You know, I was doing drugs. How'd you get here? I was preaching the gospel in a public school. It was crazy. <laughs> you laugh, it may happen in our lifetime. Go and do it. I mean, I, th- I think that's what we've been trying to get to. Like, together, just, just go and do it. Go and share your faith. Go and live out your faith. Live as if Jesus is coming back. Live as if he's near. Live as if his spirit is powerful. Live as if he's able to give you the words that you don't know what to say when it's time to say it. Just just go and do it. Speak up about Jesus. Hey, you look off today. Could I pray for you? Hey, is there something going on with you? I'm a Christian. Could I pray for you? Could I spend some time with you? Hey, tell me your story. What's going on in your life? Where have you been? What, how did you get here? Oh, well, let me tell you mine. Like, like, just go for it. Go for it. And who knows? Maybe, maybe a, a riot starts and 5,000 people are saved and, and you're in Perry Correctional next weekend. Maybe you begin to experience real faith and you begin to learn of a God who leads us and is near to us in every season of life. Our prayer team's here. We prioritize and want to spend time praying for you at the end of our service. And so if you need prayer, we, we will invite you to come to the altar for whatever's going on in your life. For some of you, you're discouraged. Let us pray for you. For some of you, you're afraid. Let us pray for you. For some of you, you're angry at me. We should pray together. I'll be down here. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, let's stand. Let's sing.